You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, turn to two places, if you will. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 and uh, Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 43 through 48 of Matthew 5. We're going to be in verses 14 through 21 in Romans 12. So Matthew 5 and Romans 12. This is week two of a little short series that we're doing on prayer and more specifically how prayer changes us. Prayer needs to change us so that we can then change the world around us. And last week we looked at Mark 11 and we looked at this teaching where Jesus talked about praying and talked about receiving what we asked for in prayer but made this statement that while you stand in prayer, meaning while you're in the act of prayer, If you have anything against anyone, forgive them. And so we talked about that last week, how in that moment, that prayer is designed to change us. It doesn't say if you have anything against anyone else, pray that God will change them. It's changing us and moving us to forgiving them for whatever we have against them. So today we make a significant shift with these two passages and deal with a very similar pattern of praying for someone But today we're going to talk about what it means to pray for an enemy. You and I might have something against someone, but not necessarily consider them an enemy. It's just a a relationship that, that has a little bit of a fracture to it and we need to repair it. But scripturally today, what we're going to look at is what it means to actually pray for an enemy. So what is an enemy? Well, various definitions, but to to kind of sum them up, it's somebody who's very antagonistic towards you, who's oppressive towards you, who's hostile towards you, uh, someone who uh, is planning uh, against you or has a hatred against you or speaks ill of you. Biblically, the word that's translated enemy is, uh, it's defined as a personal enemy, so it defines an enemy as someone that you're in very close contact with, or at least have at least have somewhat of a relationship with, but it's someone who's hateful, hostile, and an adversary, simply meaning that they're opposing you at every turn. And so there's a, a big shift from last week to this week, because again, you, you can you can have something against someone and need to forgive them, but not consider them an enemy. Here, it's going to ramp up. And how we deal with our heart, how we deal with our being a disciple of Christ, particularly with those who are, as we might like to say, out to get us. Let's begin with Matthew 5, 43 through 48, uh, probably a very popular or well-known passage to you if you've been in churches for very long. Matthew 5, 43 through 48, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
In your, in your bulletin today, I've just written three words that I think sum up this passage. To love, pray, and give. And Jesus begins by illustrating what the people around him have been taught in their day. You have heard that it was said. And where does he get this statement from? Well, the first part that he gets, of you shall love your neighbor, he gets from Scripture that they would have known. And he gets it from Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him or with your neighbor, lest you would incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the first part of what Jesus says, you've heard it said, that's a phrase meaning you've been taught this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. But then he says, you hate your enemy. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where does he get this hate your enemy piece? Well, not from Scripture. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God had quite contrary commands in understanding what it meant to be with or to treat how it meant to treat an enemy. In Exodus 23, for example, verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy, ox or his donkey going astray you shall bring it back to him if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden you shall refrain from leaving him with it you shall rescue it with him in other words God's talking to them about their enemies and their enemies personal property he doesn't say if you see one going astray grab it up it's yours now he says you take it back to him and if you know anything about those kind of animals, you know that taking it back means you're going to have a struggle on your, on your hands. Because you have to lead that animal back. In Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see that and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. In Deuteronomy 23, 7, as he's giving instructions for the assembly of Israel, he says, do not abhor, which is a nice fancy word for hate, do not abhor the Edomite, which was a people who had been grown up to go against Israel and move against Israel, and do not abhor the Egyptian, who was the people who had enslaved them. Instead, he said, offer them an opportunity to be in the assembly. God had not given any instructions through his word to hate an enemy. Now, some people would want to interject here. Well, wait a second. Did, didn't God wipe out enemies? Didn't, didn't God have Israel wipe people out and go against them in war and battle? Yes, he did. But clearly understand the purpose of that or, or the, the beginning of that. God did that. Either God by his own hand or God by clearly communicating to Israel what they were to do, did that. God did not leave room, even in Old Testament Israel, for them just to rise up against their enemies at their own behest. This was him either doing that or leading that of their own. We'll, we'll revisit that thought when we get to the Romans passage in just a moment. So where had they heard this from? If this was not in the scriptures, hate your enemy, where had they heard it from? Well, most likely from the Jewish teachers and leaders of their day. 
They were teaching something that was not found in the law of Moses. Now, perhaps they just drew it as a logical conclusion that if you're supposed to love your neighbor, you should consequently hate your enemy. Perhaps they thought of their own personal hatred for others, and so they began to teach that so that they could justify their own personal hatred for others. Regardless of why they taught it, the issue is very clear here. They had to be careful in Jesus' day to not pay attention to things that were being taught that were not recorded in God's Word. As a side note for this message today, we must be on our guard as well. Because there are people and have been people throughout the entirety of the time the Bible has existed who have always taken scriptures and tried to twist them into their own personal context or their own national context or their own cultural context to say things that it doesn't say. So we must be on guard with that. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, that's a fairly important phrase, okay? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our focus in this little series is praying, but let's just make a very clear understanding here. It's difficult, perhaps even impossible, to genuinely pray for someone that you're unwilling to love. Praying for someone is one of the highest spiritual expressions of love. And when we pray for people, and we pray that God would be active in their lives, that God would speak to them, that God would would move in their hearts, that's an expression of our love. Jesus here in this statement saying, I say to you, is creating a new ethic or a new standard of living for anybody then and now who wants to say they are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that's gone on throughout all of this teaching out of Matthew, out of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to kind of run through them kind of quickly. But just here alone in chapter 5, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus basically says, you've heard you're not supposed to murder. I tell you, anybody that you have anger or hatred to, you're already guilty of murder. He says in verses 27 through 30, you've heard not to commit adultery. I tell you, if you look upon someone with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Verses 31 and 32, you've heard it said that you can just give a certificate of divorce, an easy divorce. I tell you that any divorce outside of the bounds of sexual immorality leads other people into adultery. Verses 33 through 37, he talks about prideful oath-taking versus just simple obedience to the Lord. Verses 38 through 42, proceeding where we are today, he says, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, if somebody tells you to walk one mile, go two. Somebody asks for one piece of your garment, give them both. Somebody strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other one. See, this this Sermon on the Mount thing, (laughs) this is an entirely radical shift of what it means to be a follower of God. Because for Jesus and for those who are in his day and for us today, it is taking what we have been told or taking what they had been taught and Jesus going, you've heard this, but now I give you this. You've heard you can go along and be a good follower of God in this fashion. I'm now changing that. I'm creating a new ethic, a new standard for what it means to follow God. And so here, this new ethical standard is love and prayer. To love your enemy. 
And how do we love an enemy? We love an enemy as our neighbor. And how do we love our neighbor, the scripture says? We love a neighbor as ourself. So the correlation of all of it is what you would want for yourself, you do that for your neighbor. And what you would do for your neighbor as you would want for yourself, you do that for your enemy. Well, this is not going to sit well today, is it? Because we live in a culture of I'm going to get you back. You had your turn, now I'm going to have mine. And this is not what Jesus is allowing us to do. You love them. He says you pray for them even as they are persecuting you. Now, we, we don't have any real persecution in this nation. I know there are pockets and there are places where some acts of persecution maybe are occurring and, and maybe on the increase. And yes, maybe one day in our nation it'll go uh, to an extreme that we never thought possible. But, but understand this. We're here today in this moment and there's nobody charging through that door to take us to jail. You, you're here today as a believer in Christ and you expressed a, a public profession of faith in Christ, and nobody came to you and said they were going to put the sword to your neck because of it. And so we get kind of all up in arms here when one little thing comes at us, and we're going to go back at those people. And Jesus says, no, you're going to love them, and you're going to pray for them even as they are persecuting you. He creates a new standard. The, end, the issue is not whether you and I are going to have enemies or, or whether we're going to have people that we consider an enemy. The issue is what is our heart going to be towards those enemies. And the secondary issue is this. We all sometimes ask the question, why we have enemies? If you and I have enemies because we are a faithful witness to God and his gospel, which naturally offends people, that's one thing. If you and I have enemies because we are prideful and hateful and arrogant, that's another. There is a natural issue of enemies towards the gospel. We don't need to make more enemies more than that. The New American Commentary says it this way in this passage. The true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those with whom they are naturally inclined to hate or who mistreat them or persecute them. That phrase in that statement, naturally inclined to hate, as I thought about it this week, I thought, you know, naturally sometimes we kind of think of what's within our nature. I, I really think the commentary here is speaking naturally as to what we are uh, predisposed to by the surroundings around us. In other words, our culture and our context. And the phrase that I wrote down in my notes this week was buzzword hatred. Buzzword hatred. Just think about all the, the buzzwords or maybe the phrases that prompt hatred in our world. Liberal conservative, Democrat, Republican, Muslim, atheist, agnostic. Like you understand there's a reason the news does what it does, right? You understand there's a reason all news channels, not just some, all of them use the words, use the phrases, use the things that they use to get your attention. It's to evoke a response. Oh, they are out to get me. We've got to do something about them, whoever the them is. And what Jesus says is to whoever the them is, we love them and we pray for them, even as they may be persecuting us. 
You say, what's, what's the basis of all this? Well, he gives us the basis for it going on through verses 45 and following. He says to do this, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Theologically, this is what's called common grace, meaning that God dispenses his grace in a very common fashion among all people in the world and has done so for all time. A common grace is different from saving grace. Saving grace is that work of the Spirit by which we then choose to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and get saved. But common grace is this idea that God gives good things like sun and rain to all people. And so Jesus says we are to love and pray for all people because by doing so, we make it evident that we are sons of the Father in heaven who does the same thing. You ever said this about a child or maybe even had it said to you, man, you look so much like your daddy. Oh, that it would be said of us who are disciples of Christ, man, you look so much like your father. That he gives the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust, on the evil and on those who are good. And so Jesus drives it home. He, he uses two groups, the tax collectors and the Gentiles. Here, Gentiles has less to do with an uh, ethnic connotation and more to do with a pagan connotation. He says, if you love, beginning verse 46, if you just love those who love you, what reward do you have? Tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than, than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. Similar to the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus uses two groups. Tax collectors who were Jewish persons who were t- collecting taxes for Rome and thereby were seen as enemies of their own Jewish people. And Gentiles, pagans, pagans who were involved in no religion or were involved in religion to false gods and so on and so forth. And there were two groups that the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have traditionally looked down upon and even hated. And Jesus says, even they do the bare minimum. Even they do what you would expect a decent human being to do. He said, not so for you, not so for me. He says, disciples of, my, of mine are supposed to do more than that. And he sums it up there in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does perfect mean here? Uh, well, it doesn't mean we never mess up. And it doesn't mean we escape this world having never committed another sin. But it means we are maturing. It means that maybe where last week or last month or last year we did not love and pray for those who persecute us, now this week, this month, this year, we're moving in that direction. It means that our spiritual maturity is on an upward trend, not on a flat line or a downward trend. And that we are doing that because, again, God himself is the basis for how we act in this way. Flip over to Romans 12 for the second passage today. Romans 12, 14 through 21. Paul writes, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The three words that I put to sum up this passage were bless, honor, and overcome. Bless those who persecute you. The word here is bless, but the, the implication, the understanding is very similar to prayer. To bless someone biblically means to ask for or to invite divine favor. That would be the favor of God upon somebody and upon their life. And it's in a positive and kind way. It's not bless them as in, Lord, I wish you'd get them. But it's bless them as in, Lord, I wish you'd get them. I wish they'd come to you. I wish you would show yourself, Lord. Pour yourself out in their life so that they may see the goodness that you are. Uh, It's the same word, for example, this is how we connect it to being a prayer situation. It's the same word, for example, where Jesus blesses the fish and the bread in the Gospels. And where he blesses the meal that he and the disciples would take. That's all in a context of prayer, and it's all the same word. So this blessing those who persecute us is praying for those who persecute us and praying for them in such a way that something good happens for them. Peter picked up on this. We're going to look at several quotes from Peter's letters today. But in 1 Peter 3, 9, he says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Similar to last week where Jesus said, if we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. Peter picks up on that same kind of terminology here. If you're not praying for a blessing, even for those who are doing evil against you, even for those who are reviling or gossiping or slandering or accusing you, then you miss out on a blessing. And the curse here that he talks about in Romans 14 is just the opposite. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. To curse someone is again to ask for or to invite divine favor, but it's for harm. It's not not to ask for or to invite God to do something positive in a person's life. It's for harm in them. I I think, think about the story of Jonah. And Jonah, Jonah goes through the whole deal where he runs from God and finds out that's not a very good choice. And so he gets deposited back on land and comes before the Ninevites and, and preaches what God has him preached, tells them, and they begin to repent. And at the end of chapter 3, it says God relents from the disaster he had planned to bring upon the people of Nineveh. In other words, God changed his mind and removed the wrath of God that was going to occur on them. And this is what Jonah 4.1 says. But it, God relenting, displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. You got that? 
God's favor, God's relenting, God's forgiveness for the people of Nineveh displeased Jonah exceedingly. The the Hebrew behind that phrase really is this. It's that Jonah entertained evil thoughts in his heart because God forgave them. So much so that if you know that story, when you go through the rest of, of that first part of Jonah 4, Jonah basically says to God, why don't you just go on and kill me? It's better for me to die than have to watch all this forgiveness. He cursed them. He was consumed with the thought of what the people of Nineveh needed to have happen to them. And when God chose to do otherwise, instead of seeing that as a blessing, Jonah took that on himself as a curse. There's a phrase in our culture that sometimes we say about people, and that's this. They're going to get what they deserve one day. And let me tell you, no brother or sister in Christ who is not getting what we deserve one day should ever say that of another human being. Verse 17, we're going to skip around in this passage. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That phrasing of giving thought to do means to plan ahead. As with most things spiritual, if you don't plan ahead and you just wait till you're caught in the moment, it's probably not going to go well. And so as we think about how we would react to people who are opposing us, to people who are against us, to people who are giving us harm, the scripture says plan ahead, give thought to when you're in that situation, what are you going to do? And he says, what are you going to do? Do what is honorable. It's a word that means to act with moral excellence. In the sight of all, meaning in the sight of all who would publicly see you. The, the phrase that I wrote there is, take the high road. But to our enemies, we take the high road. To those who are trashing us and slandering us and talking about us, we take the high road. To those who are preparing to try to do harm and, and ill to us, we take the high road. And we do that in the sight of all persons. We don't do these things so that we can be seen. We do these things so that they may see Jesus. The early church understood the necessity of having a good reputation in the community around their church. Acts 2, 46 and 47, as, as Luke is recording how they were gathering and praying and, and selling their possessions and giving to one another and making sure no one was needy, he says at the end there in verses 46 and 47 that that church had favor with all the people. What that means is that there were people who were outside the church who were looking inward at the earlier church and finding favor, finding places to agree with, finding common ground with them that they may then have an inroad to coming to Christ in that fashion. In 1 Peter 3, 11 and 12, this is the way Peter talks about it. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. He says, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people should you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He says, what sort of people are you to be as you wait for the returning of the Lord? Holy and godly. Not seeking revenge, not going against people. 
preparing yourself to live in such a way where you do things honorably, even to those who are against you. Listen, at this point in August of 2022, it's well determined how the church is against culture. It's not very well determined how the church has transformed culture. And what Christ called us to, what he called us to in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, this new ethic, this new standard, what Paul is calling the church in Rome to do, a church that was seriously oppressed and was seriously going to be persecuted very soon after this letter was written written to the church in Rome. What they were advocating was, don't be somebody who just sees what's wrong with the culture and stand up against it, but transform the culture around you by loving and by praying. I would say to you, I know there are lots of folks who kind of wring their hands and, oh, I can't believe the way our culture is heading and I can't believe the way it's turning. I think it's a blessing. Have you ever read the book of Acts? Am I the only one that's ever read the book of Acts and gone, man, why don't we see this? You know what makes you stronger? Resistance. That's why you go into a weight room and you don't lift easy weight. You lift hard weight or you do hard reps or you, you strengthen the, 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 the t- tighten the strengthening bands or whatever you use. You use resistance to make yourself stronger. The early church had resistance at every corner and because they were meeting it head on and transforming with love and prayer and mercy and goodness, things were changing. And it's a blessing that we may be beginning to look more like first century Rome than 20th century home. Because it's an opportunity for God to do what he does best. Finally, we overcome. Look there at verses 19 through 21 in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a phrase that kind of means that there will be conviction brought upon him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mentioned earlier that when we look at these Old Testament passages where the enemies of Israel were defeated, destroyed, it was God who initiated that either by his own hand or by his clear communication to Israel to enter into those battles. But there's two things that's really important there. One, God never did that hastily. People like to point to the Old Testament, well, God wiped out entire entire nations. He did. But for a couple hundred years prior to that, he gave them every opportunity. And secondly, he did what he was doing to preserve the line that would ultimately give us Jesus. It was God initiated. Brothers, never avenge yourselves. When you and I seek to avenge ourselves, we place ourselves in the position of judge and jury. And if I'm judge and I'm jury, guess who's not? God. If I'm placing myself in that position, then I'm taking that position away from him. When we seek to avenge ourselves, we also really acknowledge that we just really don't trust God. 
because perhaps he doesn't avenge for us quickly enough. Or perhaps he doesn't avenge for us in the way that we thought he should avenge. Or perhaps, oh, God forbid, those crazy Ninevites repent. Our responsibility is to overcome evil with good, not more evil. And Paul uses this terminology. We feed the enemy. We give him something to drink. In other words, we sustain their lives. You say, well, Paul, he's just kind of making that up out of thin air, right? Nope. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. This is, this is the ethic of God throughout the scriptures. So what's the foundation of us being able to pray for, to love our enemies, to overcome in these things? It's the basis of, number one, this is who God is. He sends his son on the just and the unjust. He sends his reign on the good and the evil. Number two, the foundation is this. If you're here today or if you're watching today and you are a son or daughter of God, understand this. What the scripture says is before you became a son or daughter of God, you were an enemy of God. It wasn't just that we were apart from him or we were just separated from him or Scripture says we were enemies of him. Romans 5.10, while we were yet enemies, God demonstrated his love for us in Jesus Christ. When you realize, when I realize the truth of how much of an enemy of God I was, it becomes the basis for praying for and loving my enemy. Because when I see what God has done for me, his enemy, there's nothing that I can't do for mine. 22 plus years of preaching and teaching and leading, I've had my share of detractors. I've had my share of people get mad. And I've had this statement said to me more often than not. Just preach the Bible. Okay, well, here it is. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Overcome evil with good. Feed them. Give them something to drink. Do things that are honorable and take the high road. That's the Bible. And nothing less is expected of you or me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.